And now we're going to be moving into the book of Acts. We're starting in chapter 7, verse 51. We're actually picking up towards the end of Stephen's speech where he was defending, his, defending the faith before the Jewish authorities. And from verse 51 you can see that he wasn't worried about being politically correct. This is a really harsh speech. So chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. 
Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Great to see you all. Last year, we started a series in the book of Acts, and we got up to chapter 7, um, and um, we saw that the spread of Christianity was like a torch relay. You know, here's Rachel carrying the flame, which is the good news of the message of Jesus, and there she goes and passes the flame on to someone else, and they then in turn... You didn't know about this, did you, Jane? Your, your daughter is there passing on the flame. Uh, and there's Zach and he goes and passes it on again. Uh, and so that's the character of Christianity is that it spreads. Uh, uh, and so it's not just from person to person, but one person spreads it to a number of people. But there are constant threats to the gospel flame. We've seen this. Uh, so here's Zach and he gets attacked by Jackie and a whole bunch of hooligans. And they start <laughs> kicking him. Uh, and beating him. Now, all right, so that's kind of fun. But seriously, this is what, uh, what we see by the end of Acts chapter 7. Uh, there's always been threats to the gospel flame. Uh, there's always been opposition. So by the end of Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen brutally put to death. And we have all the Christians in Jerusalem are feeling under threat, uh, being imprisoned and so on. Now, the ca- that character of the threat to the gospel is something that has carried through over the last 2,000 years. So we heard it two weeks ago when we had our missionaries who have been working amongst the Uyghur people. And you just go, wow, what a great opportunity that seemed to be to you know, an unreached people group in such a remote part of the world. Uh, and yet what we've seen is that opposition to the gospel, just show us a picture of the... Uh, the Uyghur people, opposition to, the, uh, to, to religion has meant that that mission has now closed for the time being and they have returned to Australia. And it's discouraging. It's discouraging for our missionaries, you know, five years looking to start a ministry and it feels like just as you start getting traction, then you have to withdraw. It's discouraging for us because we've invested time, money, prayers into this mission And it can sort of feel like, oh, has all that come to nothing? Um, And and Beverly, you're saying no. Okay, good. Yeah, hold on to that thought. That's a right thought. Now, even here in Australia, there are threats to the gospel flame. Now, I want to show you Josh's story uh, uh, just as one instance of that. So have a look at the video. I've grown up in a Christian family and I've been raised with Christian values. And I was around about three or so when I first made the decision to follow Jesus. Since then, it's just been a continuous journey of discovering more of who Jesus is. So it all started when I received an email to say that I'd been reported by a few students for student misconduct. And so the instance that had been reported was me just talking to a girl I've been friends with for the past year and a half. And so we were just talking about work and she was saying she was really stressed. I asked if I could pray for her. She said, yeah, yeah. Something that she appreciated afterwards. She said, like, look, I don't agree with that. I'm an atheist personally, but thank you. I really appreciate the care. But I was then told that I shouldn't be praying for students on campus and that it's challenging their beliefs and that I shouldn't be doing that. I was pretty, pretty annoyed, pretty confused as to why that was a reason. I was like, no way is that a fair reason to suspend me. I had been told that I needed to attend fortnightly counselling sessions to learn how to appropriately interact with my peers. I was also told that if I stepped foot on campus again, that I would be removed by security guards. So I was quite amazed by that, thinking, wow, I've simply spoken to someone and I'm now like a threat to the safety of other students. Okay, so I'll share the rest of the video with you on you know, the prayer and news. And so I don't know all the details, so I don't know what university that was or anything like that. But 
it, uh, it's distressing, but it's, part, it's not surprising at one level, is it? It's part of a bigger trend in our society um, where Christianity is increasingly being sidelined, where Christianity can be seen as a threat uh, to ch- you know, of challenging people's beliefs and so on. Uh, and there is a mood out there amongst a lot of the social elite in our society that Christianity has no place in modern Australia. You sort of get that feeling sometimes. So these are a couple of quotes I've read in the papers. Christianity in Australia is on the brink of irrelevance. Christianity is mortally wounded. Um, and, and, you know, you read that sort of thing and it's discouraging and you think, oh, man, has... Will... Christianity be extinguished? Will the flame be put out here in Australia? Um, no, you don't think so, Jen? Okay, yeah, well, that's, what it, that's where we'll land by the end of the sermon. But can we just work through and get there? Uh, all right, so yeah, I'll come back to that question, but the answer is no, right? And I want you to be confident in that answer of no. God will continue to, do, to grow his church. Uh, the word of God is powerful and resilient. We'll see that. Jesus is king and he will grow his church. Um, but listen for the next half an hour because that's where we'll, we'll become more persuaded of that over the next half an hour. You see it really clearly in the book of Acts. Now, we're in the book of Acts. If you have any questions after today, please, um, we might even have time to put your hand up and ask a question. And Darren will run around because he's a very good runner. And he'll come and uh, field the questions. But that's in a little while. So the first comment uh, I want to make is the light shines in the darkness. Uh, you see that at the start of Acts chapter 8. So uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, you can imagine as a, as a Christian in this early Christian movement, you'd be feeling really under the pump. You'd be feeling like, is Christianity going to be wiped out? But verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? You go back, uh, get back to um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Jesus spelt out the mission. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8 on the screen. Jesus said to the apostles, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So let's show you on a map because you love maps, don't you? Uh, so there's Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people. Judea. The region down south there, Samaria, the region just immediately to the north of Judea. Um, up until Acts chapter 8, Christianity had been a movement that had been isolated um, locally to Jerusalem. Uh, and a minority of Jews in Jerusalem had come to believe the gospel of Jesus. But what happens now is as the majority of Jerusalem persecute this early church. It causes a scattering and wonderfully in God's purposes, that is the trigger for Jesus' mission to go beyond Jerusalem into Judea and then into Samaria. Uh, And the focus of chapter 8 is on Samaria. It's an extraordinary movement uh, of God's kingdom. Now, to understand the significance of this, it helps to have some uh, background understanding on the Samaritans and the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. It was, it's, it's been a hostile, deeply divided relationship. So way back in 900 BC, the kingdom of Israel, which was once a united kingdom, split in two. And you had the Jews and Judea down south, the southern kingdom, and you had the Samaritans and the northern kingdom, uh, and really the nation was ripped in two at that point. Um, In the centuries that followed, this whole region has just been war-torn, and ever since, really. Uh, But not only between Samaritans and Jews, but a whole lot of other nations around about waging war, 
But then you get the big superpowers like Egypt in the south and the Syria and Babylon coming from the north. The end result was that by the time of Jesus and the apostles, there was this entrenched, deep-seated animosity between Jews and Samaritans. They, they despised each other. And Samaritan religion was deeply corrupted. It had its origins in the Jewish religion, but it had been so corrupted, so watered down by other religions and so on, that it was barely recognisable as Jewish. Uh, it was very distinctively Samaritan and not Jewish by this time. Uh, and you get a sense of that in Acts chapter 8. So um, you, you see Philip comes into a society which is in bondage to deep superstitions. You have demonic forces. It's an unclean society with ghosts. Uh, it's a sick society with lots of illness. And it's a society who was looking for guidance from Simon the Sorcerer. Now, in our day, um, sorcerers are often portrayed romantically, you know, in movies and TV and so on, you know, where you think they, they're painted as the good guys. So Harry Potter and Hermione and Ron and, you know, here, here they are. They're, they're workers of magic, but they use it for good. Um, or we have these celebrity magicians like, um, who's this guy? You know, Constantino or someone like that. Anyway, and people go and flock to them and they see the wonders that they do. Um, but we have a bit of a distorted view of magicians. See, throughout history, sorcerers and so on have been called, the, uh, it's, it's the dark arts because a sorcerer is someone who... Um, engages with the world of the dead, uh, with, with ghosts and demons, in order to tap into their power and manipulate the power of the unclean spirit world for often evil purposes, certainly to gain power themselves and often to bring curses against um, you know, and, and they'll often do it for money, you know, get paid to curse someone else. Um, but they are experts at manipulating the powers of death and evil. And so this is what God says about sorcery. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. God says, There shall not be found among you, am amongst the people of God, anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who practices fortune telling, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Right? There, there shall not be any who dabble in, in the dark world, the world of death and evil. Yes, Simon did amazing things, and people were stunned. You know, People were transfixed by the amazing things he did, but there was a darkness and evil involved in his power. But Philip, Philip is one of the early Christians. He's not an apostle, but he was one of the deacons. And he enters this dark, spiritually oppressed region of Samaria. And what's the result? The gospel flame comes. What's the result? Just call out some of the results. If you want. The demons, so, so the, the spiritually oppressive demonic forces are driven out. And so what, how awesome is that? People who are sick are healed. Uh, he preaches the gospel and, and they believe, which is extraordinary. They believe and they say, we want to follow Jesus. We want to be baptized. And baptism has always been the mark of you know, someone who becomes a Christian. They say, yeah, baptism is like an outward symbol of what has gone on. Uh, in my heart. So verse 8, look at that. So there was great joy in that city. You don't want to undermine that, uh, you don't want to minimise that verse. A society that lives in darkness and fear of the, the evil spirits and so on is a society that, is, that lives in fear and terror and insecurity. You drive that out with the light of the gospel and it brings joy. Uh, 
verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself, Simon the sorcerer, believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Here was a power beyond anything that Simon could ever muster. So in spite of these, what looks like a really bad situation, you see God powerfully works uh, for his purposes. The light shines in the darkness. And I've got a little comment here I want to make, and that is the message of Jesus is the only hope for our dark world. Now, do you believe that? Right? Is, that, is that true? The message of, I am utterly convinced that that is true. But, he, but you will not read that in the papers. Right? Most of our journalists and so on don't believe that. You won't see it on the news. Um, but I am utterly convinced, and I hope you become utterly convinced that the message of Jesus is what our world needs more desperately than anything else. Um, I, I came across a couple of quotes about this because I was thinking about the decline of Christianity. Um, and you know, um, George Orwell, he wrote the book 1984. I read that for the first time this year. And, and I, it's a profound book, but I, I never thought he was Christian. And I don't think he was Christian. But look at this quote from George Orwell. One cannot have any worthwhile picture of the future unless one realizes how much we have lost by the decay of Christianity. And he's just pointing out that as Christianity declines, it is a dark future. Now, Greg Sheridan, who writes in the Australian newspaper, he's the foreign editor of The Australian, look at his comment. The eclipse of Christianity will be like the eclipse of the sun. Darkness will be the result. You know, so there, there are some out there in our secular world who recognise the good that Christianity, the light that Christianity brings, um, but we ought to realise Christianity will not be eclipsed, right? It may, it may be in decline as a social force, but Jesus will continue to build his church. And we must hold on to this, that the message of Jesus is the only hope for our dark world. So keep on coming to Acts chapter 8, because what happens next is Peter and John are sent to check out what's going on in Samaria. So reports come back to Jerusalem uh, from, yeah, Samaria comes back to Jerusalem. They hear that the Samaritans are believing the message of Jesus. So the next heading is the unique ministry of the apostles and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is strange, isn't it? Uh, I, hope you, I hope you feel that's a little strange. Um, because what happens is these, believe, these people believe the message of Jesus. They put their trust in Jesus. They are baptized in water. But then it's a secondary thing that they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the question is, well, what's going on here? Why is there a gap between those two things? Um, this passage has been used to create lots of doubt uh, in recent times. Uh, and so I can tell you my own story. When I was a university student, a, an early university student, um, I, I was, um, you know, I had lots of doubts and I was trying to sort things out. I had a friend who was going to a charismatic church and she believed there are two types of Christians. She believed there are ordinary garden variety Christians who put their trust in Jesus and are saved but then she believed there were spirit-baptised Christians, which is sort of like Christianity at a, at a higher level. Um, and she expressed sadness for me. So she would say, I, I, you know, she, she believed that I'd be in heaven with her, but she believed I was missing out on the power of the Holy Spirit 
in my life because I had not yet been baptized by the Spirit. Uh, and that was pretty common teaching amongst charismatic Christians. Even some of our brothers and sisters at 8.30 expressed that, um, that that was what they'd been taught and so on. Um, so the teaching, the teaching amongst some charismatic and Pentecostal churches is that being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a separate experience to becoming a Christian. Now, back in my university days as a confused young Christian, I thought I need, I need to look into these things. And so I read a book by John Stott. Uh, he's one of my spiritual mentors. Just show us that book. So it's called Baptism and Fullness. It's 50 years old, so it looks daggy and dated and so on. Um, Baptism and Fullness, the work of the Holy Spirit today. Um, and he, he was engaging with all these ideas and what the New Testament actually says about the Holy Spirit. Very, very helpful. You can still buy the book even though it's 50 years old. How good is that? The Bible's 2,000 years old and you can still buy it. Too. Uh, very useful. Uh, so this book helped me, helped me be convinced that becoming a Christian and being baptised in the Holy Spirit is actually one and the same event. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you recognise him as king and you receive the Holy Spirit or to use the words of Jesus, you are born again. You don't have to wait for some additional process. You are born again as you put your faith in the Lord Jesus and recognise him as king. Only one type of Christian. There are not two levels of Christianity. Now, I want you to have a... like um. You know, I'm happy to answer questions on this, but you'll notice that there's a verse in your outlines. Have a look at that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. I showed you this last week and I said this verse changed my life. It's been a very important verse. But I, it just expresses what the rest of the New Testament talks about again and again. And that is that you believe in Jesus and you receive the Holy Spirit uh, at conversion. So when you were, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you, were, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you turn to Jesus and believe in him, you receive the Holy Spirit. You become a child of God and it's by the Holy Spirit that you call God your father. So Galatians chapter 4. So if that's all true, then what was going on with the Samaritans? Why was their experience different from the normal experience? Um, now... We need to remember just how groundbreaking Samaritan conversion is. Um, the Samaritans, the Samaritans believed the message of Jesus. That, that would have been an extraordinary thing for a Jewish Christian to get their heads around. How, how can a Samaritan become part of the people of God? You know, because for years and years and years, they had believed in evil, superstition, they'd been hostile towards Jews. Um, what does a Samaritan have to do in order to qualify to be part of the people of God? That, th these are live questions that the early church would have been wrestling with. Um, and so just show us the spread, right? This, this is the ripple. You've got to get the PowerPoint. You know, there you go. Right, so as the, as the gospel moves beyond Jerusalem, what is required of people who are non-Jewish especially Samaritans, what is required for them to become part of the people of God? Now, the apostles are sent with all these questions hanging in the air. They are the authorised eyewitness, you know, leg the, 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 legally, you know, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, they need to go and check out and authorise what's happening here amongst the Samaritans. And notice when the apostles arrive, they don't say, well, if you truly want to become a Christian, you must do X, Y, and Z. Or if you want to be a baptised Holy Spirit type of Christian, then you must do X, Y, and Z. What they do is they come to confirm 
what was already evident to Philip that the Samaritans had been embraced in the people of God. And so it's like God uh, held off the pouring out of the Spirit on the Samaritans so that no one was in any doubt that the Samaritans too had been included. So the apostles Peter and John go, they place their hands on the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit comes on them just like it came on the Jews on the day of Pentecost uh, in a very visible, tangible way. Uh, there, was an, there was a confirmation that the, um, the apostles brought. The Samaritans too can be included in the people of God on exactly the same basis as the Jews, and that is believing that Jesus is King and Saviour and nothing else is required. Now, it's the same for us today. Like, I want to bring it to today. Some of you, like me, grew up in Christian homes, you know, where we heard the stories of Jesus, we heard the stories of the Bible. They were part of our upbringing, you know, and our parents dragged us to church. And even when they talked endlessly after church, we sort of, anyway, we were part of the people of God, you know. And, and so, as we, so for us who grew up, going along to church our whole lives, what qualified us to be part of the people of God? It's believing the message of Jesus, turning to him as king, and trusting him as saviour. Is that right? Is that what's required for those of us who grew up in Christian homes? To believe in Jesus as our king and saviour. Now, some of you grew up not going to church or maybe even in other religions. Some of you grew up not knowing the stories of God and the stories of Jesus. You never went to church. Some of you grew up in, in the midst of darkness and that was expressed in your moral choices. Now, what is required for you to become part of the people of God? What extra thing is required? Nothing, nothing extra is required. Turn to Jesus as king, right? and, that's, and by saying that I'm talking about repentance, right? and trust him as your saviour. There's nothing different in terms of... It's exactly the same thing that qualifies any person on the planet, Jew or Gentile, churchgoer, or, non, or you know, not growing up in the church. It's trusting in Jesus as saviour and king that fully qualifies you as part of the people of God no matter what your background. That's great news, isn't it? Um, now, I want to ask, has that happened for you? Have you received the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins? Uh, and we're, we're, we're assured that that happens when you put your trust in Jesus as Saviour and King. Has that happened for you? Now, if it hasn't happened for you, please come and talk to me. You know, if you're thinking, I, I want to I be a Christian. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be forgiven. I want the Holy Spirit. Come and talk to me because that's the best part of my job. You'll make my day. If you come and talk to me and we can sit down and pray and talk about what is it that is required for you to come to Jesus. And the answer is it's, it's trusting him and turning to him as king. Right? But, but, you know, we can come and you can come and we'll talk about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. Don't just drift through life without confidence. Uh, today might be the day for you to actually say, oh, I'm going to become a follower of the Lord Jesus, and I'd love to help you with that. Now, in the midst of all the joy that comes with the Samaritans embracing the gospel, comes corruption. Um, and I've called it temptation to exploit the gospel. Um, and not surprisingly, who's the guy at the centre of the action? Simon the ex-sorcerer. Um, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So even though Simon has started believing in Jesus, you can see he still has a magical, superstitious attitude to the power of God, can't you? You can see that he's been used to tapping into supernatural power 
uh, you know, through his sorcery. And now he wants to tap into this new supernatural power that is clearly a greater supernatural power. Um, but he, he wants a piece of the action and he's willing to pay good money for it. Now, Peter rebukes him harshly. Look at verse 20. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you of having such a, uh, such a thought in your heart. For I can see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. See, the good news of Jesus and the gifts of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, they are given freely. Right? And they are given freely by God the Father. Uh, and it's not like we earn them. It's not how, like we can somehow pay for them. It's not like uh, we can somehow manipulate God into pouring out his blessings. They are freely given by the good God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, to seek to buy them or exploit them is wicked. It is an evil thing. And tragically, throughout history, people have exploited and tried to tap, uh, yeah, tried to exploit the power of the gospel for their own power, for their own prosperity. Now, one of the ways you see it in our day in Christian circles is what's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, and what it is, is the idea that if you have enough faith and if you give enough money away and if you pray, into, you pray God's blessings down on you and, and there, there are certain things that you, if you do them enough, then you can basically buy your way into receiving abundant health, wealth and prosperity now. Uh, it, it can all be yours. Now listen to what John Stott, you know, one of my mentors said. He said, we have to have the courage to reject the health and wealth gospel absolutely. It's a false gospel. But like all false gospels, there's an element of truth, isn't there? And that is God wants his people to be generous. God loves to give his children good things and he loves to give them abundantly. But we must never get the idea that we can manipulate God's power and blessing by anything we do or that we can somehow earn it. Um, God's blessings are freely given, not earned or bought or to be exploited because that is a wicked thing to do. Uh, do you have any questions? Um, and Darren, you, you're on your microphone, brother, so get, it, get the action happening. Uh, yeah, so Marion over here has got a question. Um, I love John Stott's book. He did have a, an addendum or an added chapter oh. that referred to... The secret chapter. Yeah, no. secret. <laughs> I'm in the secret. Yeah. Okay. No, well, it must have been because he, he, um, he spoke of... There is a verb in Ephesians, and it's a present continuous, be ye filled and yeah, keep yeah, on yeah. being filled. Mm, mm. Mm. Which isn't a passive thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and can, so, can I run with that for a sec? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I know. What, so, so baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, is the way we're talking about that, and the New Testament talks about that. Is that when you become a Christian, uh, you receive the Holy Spirit, uh, which unites us to Christ, which makes us a child of God, by whom we can pray, Abba, Father. So Galatians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 1 and so on. But then you get passages like Galatians chapter 5, which says, it talks about the gifts of the Spirit. There's passages that talk about walking in step with the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. And that's Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. Um, and it's keep on being filled. Yeah, yeah. And so... So what we, what we need to see is that the Holy Spirit is what marks us as a child of God, but 
we are called on to live a life in cooperation or actively uh, working out the Spirit's work in our lives. So the Spirit will work in our lives, but we are called upon to give ourselves wholeheartedly to fan the work of the Spirit to flame. But it's, it's, not, it's not like we're waiting for the baptism of the Spirit, but as we read the Scriptures, as we live lives of love, so we are continuously being filled with the Spirit, but not to be confused with baptism in the Spirit. Yeah, and Aaron, I'll, and we might have is to take it, it offline if, we, okay. if it goes too far. Yeah. I ask each day, Lord, fill me afresh with your Spirit. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And I don't feel that's... Um, um, Heretical. No, 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 you're not, you're not. So, because I think it, it is yeah. not just believing the word, and it, the word is the spirit. This, I mean, this yeah, is yeah, spirit, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. But so let me, let me again run with that. So, no, no. <laughs> so baptism in the spirit is what marks you out as a child of God, and you receive that on putting your trust in Jesus. But what the spirit co- continues to do in our lives, particularly as we read his word and then live lives of love, inspired by the spirit is he fills he he fills us so we're called to be filled with the spirit as we sing amongst one another as we show love to one another and that's something that we are cooperatively engaged in i pray god will fill me with his spirit to empower me to preach i'm not saying i'm not a christian i'm not saying i'm not a baptized christian but i want the empowerment of god's holy spirit at work in my life and we need that every day to show love in very ordinary situations. It's empowered by the Spirit. Yeah. Uh, Alison, there you are. It's lovely to see you. You didn't walk here, but you're very close nowadays, aren't you? They just live down the road. How good is that? <laughs> um, you made the statement that um, the Jews received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Yep. Yeah, in the gospel, it, um, unless I'm misunderstood, which I very well could be, no, 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 that you... Jesus' death brought the Holy yep. Spirit. So yep. I'm just a bit confused there. Yep. So, very good question. So, I, where, where is it that Jesus breathes on the disciples and they receive the Spirit? Is it John 21? Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit in John 21. So this is prior to Pentecost. I take it the disciples, having understood Jesus' life, death and resurrection, that was a work of the Spirit in their hearts. But the day of Pentecost is the marking of a new era when Jesus is now reigns at the right hand of God. The day of Pentecost was like a dramatic demonstration that a new era has broken in the kingdom of god has now come the age of the spirit being poured out not just on the kings and the prophets but on all god's people so there's a new era and the day of pentecost is like a dramatic unveiling of the new era and i think that's what's going on in acts chapter 8 that just like the day of pentecost came for the jews 40 days after jesus death and resurrection the day of Pentecost effectively comes from, for the Samaritans when Peter and John arrive and they are baptised in the Spirit. But it's because it's, new, it's because it's a new thing. But from that point on, the, 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 the normal is that we receive the Holy Spirit on conversion. But there's something new about the day of Pentecost. Uh, it's, it's the new age has broken in. But yes, the Holy Spirit was definitely at work in the disciples before that before that time yeah and Anne's down here and we'll make that the last question because we do have to um, have lunch are you you guys hanging around for lunch so apparently it's going to be good so fantastic Um, I feel like um, in our efforts to um, not go down the prosperity gospel path we can throw the baby out with the Mm bathwater and be people who don't even talk about um, God's spirit very much. Yeah. Can you, um, what are your thoughts on how to have a, the right balanced approach, um, knowing that the spirit is part yeah. of our lives? Yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, a, it's the problem of the prosperity gospel that, so I wouldn't make that connection. But yeah, so there are errors that people can make about 
the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and I've talked about one error, and that is the error of having ordinary Christians and spirit-baptized Christians. I think that's an error. Um, so now, so you're saying, how can we make sure that we don't avoid talking about the Spirit or avoid living Spirit-filled lives? Um, I just think we need to keep being biblical Christians. So right, let, me, let me take you to Ephesians chapter 5. There, there's a good passage. Ephesians chapter 5 just shows you how it all plays out. Um, so it says, verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. So good advice for us there. Instead... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what Marin was picking up on. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a command to us. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And how do we do that? Well, it's as we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So as we sing songs to one another, uh, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father. But then it also comes in very ordinary ways, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? Wives to husbands, children to parents, and so on. So I take it what Ephesians 5 is saying is that we are to be filled with the Spirit, but that will express itself in the ordinary relationships where we show love, thankfulness, where we're God-honoring in the ordinary relationships of our lives. That's, that's what makes us spiritual Holy Spirit people. And, and if you like, Galatians 5 talks about the gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So as we live lives where the gospel transforms us towards love in our very ordinary circumstances, that's when we are being spirit-filled people. Uh, and yeah, we mustn't shy away from talking about the Holy Spirit. What a blessing it is to have God's Holy Spirit in us, empowering us to show love, uh, and to trust and so on. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. All right. So let me um, come back. I've got a couple more things to say. Um, so we talked about threats to the gospel flame at the start. How good is it when you see in Acts that, like, when it looks bad, Jesus is king, hey, and he is working out his purposes in spite of the, the efforts of people to extinguish the gospel flame? You know, by the end of this section, Peter and John start heading back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in all the Samaritan towns on their way home. Um, and that pattern has continued for the past 2,000 years. When there's persecution, it doesn't snuff out God's work. It often actually leads to the spread of God's work. So I'm going to tell you about China Inland Mission. Because I was thinking about this because we talked about the, the mission to the Uyghur people and the, the retreat of our missionaries from there. China Inland Mission was started 130 years ago or so by... Anyone know who? Hudson Taylor. Um, and so hundreds and hundreds of missionaries flooded into China uh, to preach the gospel of Jesus. Now, in 1949... Uh, the communist government took hold of China uh, and uh, efforts to repress Christianity. Uh, and a real, it was really an atheist regime for many decades. But in 1949, life was so hard for ordinary Christians living in China that the missionaries decided the best way we can serve the church is to, to leave China because they were attracting um, unwanted attention for the Chinese Christians. And so for all these, so how many of them were? 637 missionaries were withdrawn from China. It looked bad for Christianity in China. It's interesting, those missionaries were then redeployed in Japan and other countries in Southeast Asia. So there was a lovely spread of the gospel in other places. But now, here we are 70 years on, Christianity is the fastest growing movement in China today. In fact, the growth of Christianity in China is the fastest growing movement worldwide, probably. I, ha I haven't backed that. But um, 
It's estimated there are around 75 million Christians in China today, and if it continues to grow the rate it is, China will have more Christians than any other nation on the planet in 10 years' time. And you go, well, that is an extraordinary thing under the shadow of a government that is hostile towards Christianity. Um, uh, and so you, we, it's good to learn the lessons of history, isn't it? To actually see what God does building his church, even in spite of efforts to snuff it out. Even here in Australia, when it feels like Christianity is on the decline, you know, we read these things in the papers. Jesus continues to be the powerful king. Yeah. He is the saviour. He is the only hope for our increasingly dark community. We need to keep on stirring one another with these truths so that we can go out and just like the early church, you know, in the context of persecution, speaking the word wherever we go. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we want to thank you again for reminding us that Jesus is King. Father, he is our Saviour, the one who laid down his life for us. Uh, We thank you that as we put our trust in him, we receive forgiveness and we receive your Holy Spirit. We become members of your kingdom and your children your beloved children. We thank you that you pour out your gifts on us freely uh, and we put our trust in Jesus and we become your children. Uh, Father, we know that there are efforts in our world to suppress uh, your work, uh, to block the preaching of the gospel. Father, we pray that we will not be discouraged but that you will make us bold and courageous to press on proclaiming Jesus wherever we go, to show love, to be filled with the Spirit, to live different lives. Uh, And Father, we pray that you'll use us to extend your kingdom no matter what people do around about us. We pray that Jesus will continue to be hope in the midst of our dark world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.